Good morning, church. Welcome to the Eternity Life podcast. My name is Pastor Daniel, the senior pastor of Christ the King Lutheran Church. Today's actually my first day with that title. I just got a new name tag, which I'm pretty excited about. And joining me today, something I'm even more excited about, is one of my best friends from middle school and high school. Her name is Ashley Stevenson, and she is a professional photographer and a minister in the Baptist tradition. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm good. We were just talking about it. I turn 40 tomorrow. What? I'm all, I'm ready. Let's do it. We are in the transition. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> We are, and Molly is here. This is Molly's second day working at Christ the King. So this is a room full of people in transition, (laughs) which, uh, well, uh, just to start at the beginning, we met in middle school. One of my earliest memories is being in honors course together. I think one of my earliest memories is being in one of Miss Dove's theater classes. Was that her name? Yeah. We were in theater class together. Yeah. And I don't, I don't remember. Maybe we were on a skit together. I don't remember. That's. I think that's my earliest memory of you. But yes, always in choir together. Yeah. Yeah. And then in high school, we were in choir together. <laughs> we were in choir together. And in many exactly. other classes and in the same friend group. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of Ashleys in the friend group. There were a lot of Ashleys. It was a really... It was including easy. your now wife. <laughs> including my now wife, which is why I was joking. In my phone, you'll always be Stevenson. Right, right, right. Uh, because there can only be one Ashley in my phone. In your role. Right. Yeah. You know, in high school... We did Bible study, like in between classes, like at lunchtime, at lunch, we had a Bible study that sometimes had like 30 ish people in it. (laughs) How did we think this was normal? Like we went to a very public school that was very progressive. Yeah. And diverse and full of smart kids. And it was super normal to us to just run our own Bible study. There was no adult. No, we got to meet in somebody's classroom. They were like supposed to be our, I don't know, the person that watches out for us. And whenever he opened his mouth, I was like, that's not it. (laughs) It's probably because we were not that conservative even then. So like we were not threatening. We were not telling people they were going to hell. Is that he thought we were having a conservative Bible study and we weren't. We were using... (laughs) His conservative mm-hmm. venue for our own progressive mm-hmm. purposes, Ethan, back then. Yes. Uh, so oh, my gosh. That took me right back to I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten yeah, that. lunchtime Bible study. And the number <laughs> of our friends who are now ministers. It's it's kind of crazy. It's a lot of people. It's, again, it's just so weird to me to like look back and be like, that's not normal. Probably not. <laughs> no, for that many people in one friend group. Yeah. From a progressive yeah. high school. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. But right. on the other hand, it does make sense. There needs to be more yeah. of us. In some ways, you know, when I think about like my ministry career, like we had such an advantage. Like we had such a head start because mm-hmm. like later in life, you learn about salons and intellectual discourse and symposiums and stuff like that. I think it gave us a head start in ministry. And you're tell us a little bit about the ministry that you've been a part of. Yeah, well, I grew up in a moderate Baptist church. My mom was a religion major at Campbell. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but I always saw women be ministers. I saw women be deacons. Yeah. I always saw women teaching large groups of people. So that was never a thing that I had to contend with was, oh, well, as a woman, you can't be called, you can't do these things. Um, And I think I knew that was out there, but I didn't actually bump up against it until I was at Campbell. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, and as a religion major, the professors are much more progressive a lot of times than the actual students, especially the ones coming from smaller towns, from smaller churches. Yeah. And then that's when I started bumping up against people that were like, oh, well, what are what are you doing here? What, where are you going with wow. your calling? What's happening with this? And I'm like, what? I've never been asked this before. Are you here to teach Christian ed to children? Right. Right. Are you going to be youth minister uh, and that's it? Yeah. Geez. Which is funny because my freshman year at Campbell, I started a Bible study and it was just going to be to meet other women my age because yeah. I knew all these dudes from Raleigh that yeah. were at Campbell. I <laughs> didn't have a lot of friends that were girls. And so I was yeah. like, okay, well, I'll just start some kind of Bible study situation. So it grew yeah. and guys started coming too. And eventually two of the guys were like, well, you know, now that there's a whole bunch of men in this group, you shouldn't be the leader of it. And I was like, Oh Lordy. Yeah. I was like, that's interesting. That's not my understanding of the way I can be called and the way that I can lead in the world. Um, but it became this big argument. And because I love that group so much, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to step down. Yeah. I'm going to leave it intact. You guys do what you want to do. Yeah. Um, I remember even by the time I got to seminary, like we studied feminist theology or liberation yeah. or mujerista or womanist yeah. theology. And yeah. they're like, this is so cool. And other people are like, what is happening? Yeah. Here? That's what I made my unofficial minor with my major was religion and Christian ministries. And so I designed all of my side work around feminist theology. So, yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Well, and um, you've been a powerful voice for feminism mm-hmm. like for, I hate to say it, 20 Forever. <laughs> I think I rolled out of the womb almost 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and again, what's interesting is that it's not like a thing that was actually preached or talked about or said to me. It was all by example, like yeah. seeing my mom being a leader that way. My grandma was the first woman police officer in her county. Whoa. And it was because she left an abusive marriage situation and just needed a job. Yeah. And they were the ones hiring. And all the other men on the staff would like give her such a hard time. And she'd be like, okay, first of all, here's my paycheck. I get paid way less than you. Yeah. But also like, I need a job to support my kids. Yeah. And so, right. yeah, I, I just saw that example. It wasn't like a you know, we're marching with signs, but that's just what went down in my family. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so interesting. I think one of the things that, that was a hallmark of our friendship, even early on is that you and I had to be adults earlier than a lot of other people. Yeah. And we were adults before we were adults. Yeah. And um, I think when you see that, you know, in other people, you're like, Oh yeah. You know, you too, you know, and it, 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 there are a lot of people like that hasn't been their reality. Sure. Happy for them. Absolutely. God them. Love that for uh, them. My kids are not on the path of like no, being early, early adults. <laughs> um, but um, do you think that's true? Like you had to be an adult pretty early on in your life. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also a level of how we handled it too. Like wanting to be authentic, wanting yeah. to like wanting to be seen in it. Some people are in that situation and they want to fake it. They want to hide it. They want to ignore it. Mm. But I think for both of us, we were just like, okay, we're going to face this head on. And, and to be utterly convinced that like what Jesus wanted for us was our true authentic self. Mm -hmm. And then um, sort of transitioning to the real adulthood, like Mm. we became real adults. Um, Real, real adults. You had 
a lot. You went through a lot in your twenties, really. I did. Yeah. yeah. I graduated from Campbell and immediately that summer, well, in the same month, that August, I started Duke Divinity School and got married. Um, and within, oh gosh, within a few weeks, I just fell into a really dark depression. I think I just didn't know, like here, I'm at this point, I'm at Duke, but what am I doing now? Yeah, I felt really misunderstood there. People, don't get me wrong, Duke can be a great place for a lot of people, but like a lot of people would say to me like, okay, so you come from Baptist tradition. How are you even allowed to be here? I'm like, oh, but there's so many different kinds of Baptists. That's how I'm allowed to be here. There's not just one kind. Um, And being married that young. And it just. It's a whole different, several different kinds of Methodists too, by the way. Right. (laughs) Right. I know. I got a lot of speeches early on about how being Methodist is so much better for women. Um, And then I watched my classmates also then talk about the glass ceiling as Methodist women. And the churches that they, they would never get to serve in. So that was, that was interesting conversation. But by the end of that year. I decided to quit and leave, which as a perfectionist, older sibling, Enneagram three, all the things I had never quit anything. You don't quit Duke. Like (laughs) you just, you just don't do that. But I was so miserable that I was like, I at least need to take a break. I need to figure out it's a little expensive for me not to know what's going on. What? Yeah. Cause I was Methodist. Um, (laughs) But it was a good thing because a few months later, my dad took his life. So I was very glad to not have been starting my second year. It would have been like two weeks after I'd started my second year of divinity school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you say a little bit about mental health with your dad sort of leading up to then? Yeah. Uh, and what you look back with your adult eyes now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always knew that my dad wasn't emotionally connected in. Yeah. I saw that he was this one person in front of everyone else, definitely at church. Like our family was at church every time the doors were open, but I saw how, you know, he was this one like great leader, funny, all the things there and then came home and it was like emotions turned off and it was a totally different person. And so, um, I was the one in the house that would argue with him about like, hey, how you're acting is not normal. Telling my dad, hey, here's how you should actually treat me (laughs) instead of how he was treating me. Yeah. Um, And so we didn't have we didn't have any warning signs right before he died. But the whole year following all of this stuff, just one by one started surfacing that we didn't know was like going on. Um, Mm. So. Yeah, we we didn't see it coming, but after it happened, with everything that came out, it unfortunately it made sense. It made sense. The um, you know, the number of times that someone goes through losing a loved one for, via mental health, via mm-hmm. suicide, yeah. right, uh, and can't talk about it or feel like they can't bring it up at church or <laughs> that it's an unforgivable sin. Yeah, I'm sure you've gone through that several times over and had these conversations with folks that yeah. say like it, there's nothing unforgivable. It's pretty amazing the things that people will say to you when you're in crisis that they think is helpful. Ooh. Well, and a lot of people my mom a lot of women my mom's age took that as an opportunity to tell her all the stuff that their husbands had done, uh, like all the secret stuff. Oh no. And my mom's like, that's great, but mine's on display right now. So yeah. 
thanks for commiserating with me. I don't know. Yeah. We, we know now we're pretty confident now through literally all of our therapists have agreed that he probably had narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Um, and that's around the time they took his life, all of his like internal worlds had collided and the like story he had told himself about himself he got a glimpse that it wasn't true anymore. He was kind of getting busted on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And so a lot of times when that happens with people with MPD, they take their lives, they run away and start over. Like it's, yeah. it's very rare that someone takes that moment and like grows yeah. from it, changes from it, becomes good and different from it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of like, we, we kept feeling like we had all these puzzle pieces, but we couldn't figure out what the puzzle was supposed to be or look like. Yeah. And hearing about MPD and reading about it was like giving us the framework of what that puzzle actually was. Yeah. 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 And, you know, your bravery. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if it helps to say, like, I thought it was pretty inspiring watching you handle this thing like a boss. Thank you. Um, but no, it couldn't have been easy. No. And you know, at the time, there are a lot of people that were trying to help give me advice, trying to help lead me through it. Yeah. But you know, when you're 23, 24, you think you know everything. Yeah. And I was at a place like with my faith, with my marriage, with a whole lot of things that I was just like, okay. I have been the prodigal son all my life or the prodigal son's brother. Yeah. I've done all the right things. Yeah. Um, Where's my goat? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> wow, cool. Something this bad happened. Amazing. So yeah. I'm just going to dig in because everyone's like, oh, Ashley's the strong one. Ashley's the one that can do all the things. Okay. Um, yeah. There were a lot of people, especially within our church that um, really wanted to say helpful things about God and heaven and where they felt like my dad was and why did this thing happen? And it really, none of it was helpful. <laughs> it yeah. would just kind of make me more bad or more bitter or push me further away from wanting to be a part of a yeah. church group like that. And then whenever I have to, you know, counsel somebody or coach someone on how to be in a tough situation, yeah, I tell them, say, I'm here and I care. Mm. And then they're like, well, what about if I say this? Like, mm, let's not leave the script. Yeah, no. <laughs> you you can't smooth no. this over. Everyone grieves differently. Everyone yes. involves God in their grief differently. Yes. And to assume you know where someone is at in their grieving and where God is at in their grieving. Like, it, you can't. You just can't. And stages of grief are not linear. Yeah. Right? They ping pong around and yeah. all those things. Um but in particular, like the stigma of death by suicide. Yes. We yes. need so many more people who who are who have healed enough that they can open up and yeah. say um, that doesn't mean he's unloved by God. Yeah. Well, and luckily, the church I grew up in, no one really went that way. Yeah. But I remember, I remember one of my in-laws at the time. She told this story about a good friend of theirs whose husband had tried to commit suicide three times. And she said, you know, God just didn't want him to die. And what she yeah. didn't think, I mean, immediately I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, but then after the dot, dot, dot of what you yeah. just said means, oh, but God wanted your dad yeah, to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that is the logical Next outcome step. of what you're saying. But people 
don't follow that in there. She was just giving me the story about suicide to relate to what I guess relate to what I was going through. And I don't, yeah, that was really not helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Not long after that, you start your photography business or in that time you start being a photographer. I had started photographing just under my name yeah. And then literally the Monday, my dad died on a Sunday. We didn't find out that he died till Monday, but that Monday I was supposed to launch story photographers, like yeah. my new branded yeah. website. Yeah. Yeah. So it, right. Exactly. At that same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, your dad's story is an exaggerated tale of how a lot of church was. Yeah. Well, I grew up being told like how you appear is really important. Yeah. What it looks like is going on. Yeah. What it looks like is going on. Right. Yeah. Like, sure. Something else will be happening, but it matters how you're showing up and what, what outside thing you've got going on that helps people think that you've, you're okay. Things are good, you know, which I think is very like. I call it kind of country club traditional yeah. church that like when you show up, yeah. it's about making sure like, oh, you're good. Okay. You're good. Yeah. I'm here if you need something, but you're not going to need anything because you're not going to be one of those people. That, that gives me something. such the ick. Right. It gives me such the ick. Right. And so a lot of churches aren't as big as they used to be, Yeah, but they're more authentic. Like <laughs> the people who are there are not doing that. Yeah. Like, I hope. But um, so that's because we had to learn the hard way. We grew up with that. We grew up. With we that. want to swing the pendulum the other way. But being authentic in religious spaces is somewhat dangerous, right? Yeah. Yeah. And which it is interesting because that coincided literally within the same year or two when my dad died. The two church plants that I'd been a part of, one of them being New Community, yeah. Um, they both imploded. They both fell apart over yeah. things that were really important to me, um, like using gender inclusive language for God. Yeah. Um, uh, not just welcoming, but affirming gay people. Yeah. Um, just this whole slew of things that had been important to me. That's why I went to those places. Um, and I knew not everyone agreed with me, but there was that room for everyone to have yeah. differing opinions. I thought, um, but there was a line in both those spaces where somebody tripped the line. It was too far. It was too much. And so both of those groups fell apart around the same time that my dad died. And that's when I was like, well, I'm done. I'm out. Thank you so much. This has been great. (laughs) Not doing it anymore. Well, you told me before the podcast, we could talk a little bit about going through a divorce there too. I mean, how far was that from when your dad died? Yeah. So my dad died in 2008. Yeah. Um, We... My ex-husband was super involved in my dad's business. Yeah. Um, again, we had so much fallout after my dad died um, that in 2016, that's when he chose to leave. And at the time, it blindsided me. Yeah. I absolutely now could have seen it coming. Yeah. Um, it's what's better for me. It's what's better for both of us. But at the time, I was just stunned. And... Um, It was the thing, like with the grief with my dad, I felt like I had to like be strong and show up and push forward and do all the things. And then the grief this time with my separation and divorce, I just, it's like I hit rock bottom 
and I just kind of surrendered to it, you know, instead of trying to get ahead of the grief, control the grief, get around the story, fix the things. It's just like, okay, that didn't obviously work the first time. Being the prodigal son's oldest brother, this stuff's still going to happen. Yeah. It doesn't, nothing you do can keep the bad things from happening. Yeah. But what matters is how you take care of yourself, how you show up for you, because that's all you can control. Yeah. That's all you can control. And so after all that time, I mean, my ex-husband and I used to lead worship together for different groups. There was a lot of different service we did within churches. And you um, were running the business together. Yes. Um, so, you know, after those two churches kind of imploding, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go to church anywhere. We weren't involved in anything. Um, but during that, you know, six months after my separation, it was just like, I started having this very authentic curiosity about what it would look like to have a spiritual life again. Yeah. Not like, how was it taught to me? Cause I think part of like, I, I don't know if you'll appreciate this, but part of like going through religious education is there's so much um, guided deconstruction in that. Yeah. But there's not guided reconstruction. There's not space for what does that yes. look like after. Yes. So there's guided deconstruction. And then they're like, okay, let me send you on your way. Bye. That's because it needs our generation to do it, right? Like sure. the generations ahead of us that were teaching yes. hadn't gotten around to, to reconstruction yet. They, sure. So a lot of them went back to what they yeah. had deconstructed yeah. and didn't teach what they had learned in yeah. you know whatever space they were in, whatever theological space. And so... You know, they just kept teaching what had been taught because that's what they knew. And so it was like, suddenly I was in this place where I wanted to reconstruct something for myself. I didn't want to tie up. Well, what do I actually think about prayer before I decide to pray? What do I really think God does with prayers before I, choose? you know, like I yeah. put that like academic brain aside and instead, like just first actually came back to the serenity prayer. Yeah. And was like, okay, there's nothing I can control right now. It feels like in the situation, <laughs> except myself. Yeah. So help me figure out what it is that I can control, how I show up, and then let's see what happens from there. And that's kind of was my entrance back in was, you know, I I don't I don't think I can ever name exactly how God yeah. interacts with the world or interacts with prayer, if God changes things, how God changes things. But I knew that was the very clear starting point is, okay, I do know that what I have control over in this situation is me and how I move through this is on me. I get to choose that. And it was a huge difference. I love that how like death and resurrection Mm. are woven into our lives all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always there. They're, they're both always there. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Well, and during that time too, there were so many ways before that point in my life that I just had kind of abandoned myself. Yeah. Like being a caregiver in so many ways, taking care of my family after my dad died, starting this business, um, just always trying to do all the right things so that the bad things didn't happen. Yeah. But then like slowly, I was constantly losing me in that. You are not what you do. Yeah. And so by the time that the separation happened, I was just like, I had abandoned my body physically. I had left myself emotionally in a lot of ways. And it was just like, okay, 
I I'm what I have. I'm who I've got. Mm. No one's coming to save me. I I'm the one that needs to show up and come back in my body and know myself and do those things. Uh, because that is holy work. That yeah. is sacred work. Yeah. Um, and so it started this amazing journey that I don't know that I would have taken any other way. I don't think that's why this happened, but it started this amazing journey that I yeah. wouldn't have taken any other way to realize how out of my body and self-abandoned I was. Wow. And then to then start to do the work to come back to myself. Wow. Well, thank you so much for opening up to us and yeah. sharing your story and for all four people who listen to this podcast, I think they're gonna they're gonna get a lot out of it. We're gonna have Ashley back. Would you come back? Absolutely. And talk about your work in photography. Yeah. Ooh.